1: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Willy Wonka Naive Sweetheart edition. It's Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. On today's show, Wonka stars Timothy Chalamet as Raw doll's creation, The Impish and I'd argue vaguely sinister. Many people would argue vaguely sinister chocolatier Willy Wonka. It's a prequel. And then Leonard Bernstein was the first great American-born conductor. He was also a composer. He, of course, wrote the music for and score for West Side Story, On the Town, a huge cultural luminary, now has a biopic. Maestro stars Bradley Cooper, who also directed it. And finally, it's that time of year. Again, it's Movie Club. It's Slate's ever-thoughtful reconsideration of the year in movies, starring, as ever, the ringmaster Dana Stevens and several luminaries, top film critics. Joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. We're looking at the same sunlight right now.
0: I hear you're in Los Angeles.
1: I'm in LA. Welcome. Enjoy the jasmine. I'm so It's the light. It's David Hockney. Literally, his brush is like descended from, well, he's not in heaven, but from wherever. And he painted this beautiful white wall opposite me that's bathed in California sunshine. And of course, Dana Stevens is the uh, film critic of Slate. Hey, Dana.
2: Hey, hey. Happy New Year to both of you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Happy New Year.
1: Shall we make a show? Let's do so. All right. Willy Wonka is the enduring creation of the British writer Raul Dahl, Dahl was a famously wicked man, and he made his magical chocolatier a little wicked, a lot wicked, definitely wicked, I would argue. Uh, And this was captured to great effect in the classic 1971 film, above all by Gene Wilder, who arguably just is Willy Wonka. I mean, certainly to someone in my generation, you close your eyes, you see Gene Wilder and nothing else. Along the way to try to displace him a little comes Timothy Chalamet who stars as a young Wonka who arrives in a whimsical melange of a city. It's supposedly part Paris, London, and Prague only to confront a sinister candy cartel and to be trapped in indentured servitude by a pair of cockney miscreants. The movie stars Calla Lane, Key and Michael Key, Olivia Colman, and Hugh Grant as the original Oompa Loompa. In the scene we're about to hear, a down-on-his-luck Wonka played by Chalamet demonstrates his chocolate-making skills to his soon-to-be sidekick, a street urchin named Noodle. Let's have a listen.
3: What are you doing?
1: I'm making chocolate, of course. How do you like it?
3: I don't know. I've never had any. You've never had chocolate? Still, no. Well,
0: lucky for you, Noodle, I have a
3: selection of the world's finest ingredients right here in my travel factory. Where to begin? That's the question. I know. Silver linings. Made of condensed thunderclouds and liquid sunlight. Did you always want to make chocolate?
0: No. Back when I was your age, I wanted to be a magician.
1: Okay, Dana, I'll start with you. This is, uh, this is in one sense a tall order both the children's book and the original movie are remembered very fondly i think probably rather vividly by a lot of moviegoers and yet here we are this is the creative team who gave us paddington 2 one had high hopes going in how did you feel about this movie
2: yeah i don't know if one had high hopes going in i don't i think i would have resisted even seeing this movie and and talking about it on the show if not for paul king's name being attached the director who who did paddington and paddington yeah, 2 exactly uh, because it because it just felt like I already, I never saw the Tim Burton, I don't know if you guys saw the 2005 Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I think was the title, kind of retelling, which went back to the role doll and kind of reinvented the character with Johnny Depp as a slightly younger, I guess, version of Willy Wonka. Um, never saw it <laughs> because it just felt like needless IP mining and it wasn't a great moment in Tim Burton's career and I just didn't feel like it. But the Paddington connection did, did draw me to this one. I don't know. I feel quite ambivalent about this movie. I don't think it wholly works, but at the same time, it's got a really sweet, warm heart, and it's not a movie that you want to pick on. (laughs) The songs are not great, except for the two songs that borrow from the original 1971 musical. And I think the main problem with this movie, which I should say looks really fabulous, the production design of this kind of imaginary pan-European city where he lives is lovely and imaginative, but I think Tim, Timothy Chalamet is really miscast. I don't think he's even bad. I just think that the character, as played by him, has no continuity—not only with Gene Wilder, for sure, uh, but with the character from the story or with any any character that, from this from this Willy Wonka universe. And that's not really a knock on his performance because I actually find him quite charming. He's an okay singer and dancer, as good as you know actors need to be for musicals nowadays, but. One of the reviews we read, I believe it was David Fear and Rolling Stone, called this a karaoke performance. And I kind of feel that. I feel and it doesn't have, again have to do with the singing talent, but he's I feel like he's karaokeing a character, and I could never get past that.
1: Oh, uh, that's so perfectly put. Julia, what's your relationship with the IP and and therefore in some ways to this movie?
0: Uh, love Roll Dolls, deeply weird books. Uh, don't love the, you know fat shaming. I mean, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory of the books is one of the ones that has aged least well because it's just a weird entrepreneur being cruel to fat kids and blaming them for greediness. Anyway, not a book that totally works and yet also a universe that's fascinating and marvelous in all the ways that Dahl is. I've never seen the Gene Wilder one.
1: Wait, wait I think... Julia, your volume went out. Try again.
0: (laughs) Nope. Sorry. Can't go back to that. Anyway, um, moving right along, I feel very familiar with the character, and I've seen enough clips and songs that, you know, like I get the gist that that Wilder kind of leaned into the baddiness of Wonka as a character. And my main response to this movie is that Wonka has become Charlie, Like, somehow Wonka is this, like, wide-eyed wonder boy in the big city. And then the fact of him having these, like, how and where did he acquire these magical chocolate-making powers? It's like a prequel that doesn't explain anything, really, which is fine. I mean, the prequel that explains everything is is a bit of a cliche at this point, too. But I have no idea how this sweet boy who you know, can't pass a lamppost without grabbing it and swinging around in a magisterial circle. (laughs) Like, became Willy Wonka. How How did he go from this sweet orphan saving, you know, so it seemed to have no continuity with the material as I understand it in any way, even if perhaps I understand that material slightly less thoroughly than one might desire. And yet, I don't know. Sure, it was fine. I went with one of my sons. We had a good time. It's beautiful. I kind of love how shamelessly and without irony, Timothy Chalamet does grab all those lampposts. Like, he's just like, sure thing, here in a top hat and a cloak singing to you about chocolate. Going for it. Like, I just love the pure kind of like, I feel like you could see the theater kid in him in a different way than in other roles where he's, I don't know, more subtle or cool or I don't know. He's just so sincere here and it's kind of sweet. It's very sweet, maybe too sweet. So we enjoyed, but the songs suck. The songs are, I mean, actually my son was singing them afterwards and I was like, how, what, like, I need to put you in music classes. I don't even know how you remember (laughs) those songs or can tell them apart. (laughs) He was singing the new ones and they're all just very, very B minus songs, and I think actually, if the songs had been delightful, the whole thing you would have been it would have been easier to forgive the "Why does this exist?" question and be like, "Sure, I'll go on this candy colored ride."
1: Yeah, I mean, I I will say that my hopes were high, precisely because of Paul King and his uh, co writer on the Paddington, first two Paddington movies. They were doubly dashed because not only did I think that this failed to achieve takeoff, it just was sort of straining just as it got its heavy belly off the runway, but this big giant overstuffed jumbo jet just never was aloft for me. And I just felt like I heard the grinding of the engine. You know, very lucrative homework assignment. It felt to me like it was a very lucrative homework assignment for these people who'd done inspired work uh in this other, you know, franchise. It, but then I had to read afterwards that they chose to do this instead of Paddington 3. So Paddington 3 will be an entirely other creative team. So uh, it, was just a, it was just a one-two punch uh, for me to see this. My point about this movie is very simple, which is that the 71 movie with Gene Wilder is as close to a child-hating movie as a ch- children's movie could possibly be. Um, it seemed to hate the very relationship at the heart of the movie between his sweets industry and children that had turned them into brats. So for all the fat-shaming, which is inexcusable, From our viewpoint now, it does seem to locate the origin of it in this kind of, you know, giant factory pumping out a massive surplus of sweets in a world, by the way, that is defined very at the very opening of the film, the entire like. Drive plot drive of the film is that Charlie lives in grinding poverty. I mean, he effectively lives in a giant bed with like eight other relatives, and the saving grace of his entire relationship is the beautiful relationship he has with his grandfather. I mean, it's an incredibly humane parable in some ways, and I just think it's that weird undernote of genuine malice and and arguably misanthropy that gives Wilder's Wonka its edge and it also gives the movie its heart right so it's it's there's this test that children keep failing over and over and over again except for simple decent charlie and so at the end of that movie that line that kind of deathless line that caps the whole movie so shines a good deed in a weary world is beautiful it's like very it's actually a genuinely moving climax quiet climax of this otherwise loud and somewhat assaultive and nasty movie and the other thing I'd say is that allowed to play an adult figure, I mean, the movie in a weird way is 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 wise about adults whose livelihood or sense of self is built around ingratiating themselves to small children are off or can be off. And it's not that the movie undermines or dislikes Wonka, but it's not credulous about him. And it allowed Wilder... I mean, so much of his performance is his, his physicality, which is wonderful in the movie, but it's in his eyes. Those like startlingly blue eyes have this hint of madness to them, right? They're, you said baddie, Julia. That's a great word for it. And what I would say is that the problem with Chalamet's performance is exactly that, Julia, is that it's got this game theater kid, let's put on a show okay, I I won the part, like I'm playing Wonka in the school musical, <laughs> but it never migrates up into his eyes. I really, really admire Chalamet as an actor, but he has a slightly too cool for school, dull self-regard that works. It has a kind of slightly sunken in, mysterious quality that's very alluring, right? It throws him into the category of, like, Brando and Dean. And, like, like I, I do think he can be that and is on his way to being that caliber. And I really admire that. It just isn't Willy Wonka. This thing, just to me, was verging on Dead on Arrival.
0: The one thing it does leave you wondering is, like, how... I mean, it almost, like, sets the sets the agenda for the next movie that would connect this kind of wide-eyed naive to the baddie Gene Wilde herself. I mean, I don't know that anybody's gonna want that movie, although this movie's done well, so maybe they will. I do want to shout out though the one set of moments where the movie came to life, and maybe it's because it has a bit of that Dolly and nastiness, but but Livia Coleman as Mrs. Scrubbit, the washerwoman slash indentured servitude, you know, cheat who who Pr- imprisons Wonka at the beginning. She's great. <laughs> and th- that whole environs, like the best parts of the movie are the parts there that aren't just like people, you know, holding up chocolates in their hands and and batting their eyelashes at them. But the song set in the washery and I live, I mean, Libby Coleman, good is maybe not an interesting opinion, but her goodness. She cannot be broken by the dim-wittedness of this movie. Her goodness shone through to me. Did you guys find that?
2: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. there's a little touch of Sweeney Todd in that relationship between her and the other bad guy who runs the laundry. There's a little bit of, you know, Mrs. Lovett and, and Sweeney Todd, and I love that reference. And, yeah, it's the only place where there's a little twinkle of malice in the movie. There's other bad guys, but they're just much duller bad guys. Yeah, the more we talk about the movie, I feel like this makes me think a little bit in terms of the way it handles a piece of IP, although this, in this case I care about that piece of IP more. I'm just thinking of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that we saw last year, which I think similarly seems like it's a great movie to take your kids to. It has a sweet sincerity about it. You know, there's nothing objectionable about it. There's also nothing brilliant or special about it. But it's not a bad thing that it exists, and it probably shouldn't be like three adults deciding whether it's a good movie or not.
0: (laughs) Yes. If the review is just to my 10-year-old, great movie, hummable songs. (laughs) So... We can. I can let him have the last word on
1: it. Here, here. That's the last word. It's Wonka. It's out in theaters now. Uh, I'm glad we mentioned it's done. Huge business. The people spoke. They disagree with us. So anyway, check it out. And if you do, let us know what you thought.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on all your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
3: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?
1: All right. Now is the moment in the podcast. We discuss business. Dana, what do we have?
2: Steve, we have but one item of business this week, and that's to tell everyone about today's Slate Plus segment. We have a post-holiday themed segment this week. It was Julia's choice. It was something that she heard on the Script Notes podcast, a wonderful podcast who's Hosts. We have had both of them, I think, on, on our show before. They talked about um, the gift that got away from their childhood, a memorable Christmas gift or other holiday gift from their childhood, and a memorable gift they always wished that they had gotten, but they never did. And Julia really enjoyed that segment on Script Notes, so she wanted to lift it and try to do it ourselves. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear us talk about that at the end of this podcast. And if you're not, you can become one at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for becoming a Slate Plus member, you get members-only programming on shows like Ours or Slow Burn or the Political Gab Fest, and you get unlimited access to all the writing and all the podcasting on Slate.com. When you're a Slate Plus member, you're helping us stay afloat and you're supporting the work of our wonderful colleagues. So please sign up today, if you haven't already, at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, back to the show.
1: I think I should begin by saying how hard it is to describe, especially to younger listeners, what Leonard Bernstein meant to this country in the middle decades of the 20th century. Picture this. Okay, After World War II, European high culture is totally insecure, totally unsure of where it's going to go. Europe is in ruins. United States has all the money. Is it going to migrate to America? And if it does follow the money to the United States, is it going to thrive there in the new world? And while there, is it going to become distinctively American? There were two very early and emphatic yes answers. The first and probably most still most well-known was abstract expressionism said, yes, painting is going to thrive on American shores. There was an emphatic yes to the latter question as to classical music, symphonic music because of Leonard Bernstein. Of course, one of the greatest symphony conductors of all time, arguably the greatest this country has ever produced. A public educator of unrivaled status when it came to classical music. He, as a composer, melded high and middle forms, uh, particularly his work with uh, a musical theater. He wrote the musicals On the Town, West Side Story, Candide. He wrote symphonies. Now, Lenny, as he was called, has a biopic. It's co-written and directed by Bradley Cooper, who stars as Lenny. It's at once a mammoth canvas and a tiny pointillist one, because in some ways it's Real subject is Leonard Bernstein's marriage to Felicia Montalegre, an actress here played by Carrie Mulligan. The heart of their marriage is tenderness, humor, respect, deep mutual regard, but also the heart of her story, which is the story of being married to a very public genius who is very privately gay. In the clip we're about to hear, a middle aged Montalegre reflects on a relationship torn between family, fame, and Bernstein's sexual dalliances. Let's listen.
2: He called me, you know. And? He wants us all to go to Fairfield together for two weeks. He sounded different. Felicia. No, I... I, Let's not make excuses. He didn't fail me. It's Felicia. No, it's... It's my own arrogance. To think I could survive. On what he could give. It's just so ironic. I would look at everyone, even my own children, with such pity because of their longing for his attention. It was it was sort of a banner I wore so proudly. I don't need. I don't need. And <laughs> look at me now. Who's the one who hasn't been honest?
1: Alright, Julia, let me start with you this time. What did you make of this movie?
2: What an
0: interesting choice for how to make a Leonard Bernstein biopic. I actually don't really think I would even call this a Leonard Bernstein biopic because in a way that feels strangely resonant with the portrait of Wonka that we get, Leonard Bernstein shows up fully formed with all of his magical talents and the movie is not very curious about what they are or where they came from or how they connected with the public or how he came to be the figure in American life that he was at all. Which is fine. Any movie can be interested in whatever it wants to be, and it is primarily interested in this relationship with his wife and the kind of you know betrayals of his dalliances with men. The movie doesn't ever actually define him as gay or bisexual or whatever, but he's clearly um, unfaithful, and and it's about that bargain they've made, and I think that. Makes some sense. I mean, the, the Bernstein's children, the children of this marriage, approve of this movie. And one of the daughters wrote a memoir called Famous Father Girl, which maybe conveys the gist of it. And it certainly makes sense that a child of this marriage's primary lens on Leonard Bernstein would be through the marriage. And it actually almost has a childlike. Presentation of Bernstein, like he emerges in the movie the way he would in a child's life. Huge, talented. Where does it come from? Unclear, you know, almost that sense of like you can't, you can't see your parents clearly. It almost has that occludedness in its portrait of him. Um, so I found myself torn in watching it between being interested in these two performers connecting and Carrie Mulligan's quite marvelous performance, but I think it's very telling that the clip we played of this movie is not of uh, Bradley Cooper's sort of pitch perfect, but maybe empty mimicry of Leonard Bernstein as a public figure, but of the wife who is the main character. And certainly Hollywood has been ignoring the the crucial wives for, for a long time. But I kept thinking back to the Napoleon movie we saw, which is, you know, it wasn't a great movie, but I wouldn't have minded the animated wikipedia page movie of leonard bernstein
1: who's really interesting and this movie is so not interested in him carrie mulligan gets top billing i mean
2: yeah i mean she's literally top billed she's the first mentioned in the credits uh she, she may not get as much screen time as him but you know for a movie called maestro i mean it really should be maestra it really is as much about her as him i'm not quite sure i agree that it's not interested in leonard bernstein though i mean i i do want to give credit to to Cooper's performance, and I and I do agree, and I think this maybe has more to do with how he directs himself than with how he's acting the role. I do think that there are some moments of indulgence in the performance, uh, and I talk about this in my review of the movie. There's a there's a big um, scene at the end. It's sort of an emotional and musical climax of the movie, based on a real life event where he, Bernstein conducted Mahler in the Eli Cathedral in England and that's almost like a, a recreation of some film that exists of the event and it goes on a little bit too long and i feel like there's some there's there's something to be said there for the movie being a little bit um showoffy you know directorially showoffy but um having seen this twice now i watched it again last night because i had seen it so long ago uh, the first time probably a month ago i really admire this movie i don't think it's quite to the level of a Star is Born C- Cooper's directorial debut, which I loved and thought, you know, really kind of hit it out of the park. But it's a it's a very cinematic film. And that's can't always be said, I think, when an actor moves over to directing and especially directs himself twice in a row in two big, you know, big stretch kind of roles with a, a huge change in his his look and sound. But I feel like Cooper has really proven now over the course of these two movies he's directed that he has a cinematic eye. And we haven't talked about these moments yet, but I love the um, the inventive kind of collapses of fantasy and reality in in this movie, in Maestro. Like the moment, for example, there's a montage when the two of them are falling in love early in the movie where they – run out of a picnic that they're at that's supposed to be in Tanglewood. So they're in upstate New York and somehow suddenly they're running down the aisle of this theater where On the Town, the musical that Bernstein wrote is in rehearsal. And there's these moments like that where sort of time and space are collapsed. And then they're kind of in the musical and they're dancing with the sailors on stage. And it's just the opposite of a plotting biopic that checks off boxes. There's just a sense of liftoff in those scenes that I really admired. Um, yeah, this movie is not perfect but it's totally worth seeing if only for carrie mulligan's incredible performance i think maybe the best one she's ever given steve what about you
1: i loved this movie for a variety of reasons whoa and uh, agree with everything you say both of you um I uh, I did have some reservations early on. I was very skeptical, and in fact, sort of reminded me of the agony of 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 liftoff that is never fully achieved. That that characterized my experience of seeing Wonka. One line in particular captured what made me cringe, which is uh, at one point, Carrie Mulligan says, "Yes, yes, he's working with this wonderful young lyricist named Stevie Sondheim," and I, there's just a lot of like Aaron, by which I mean Aaron Copeland, come here, buddy you know, there's a lot of like sort of high cultural luminary name dropping early on. And actually, Dana, I didn't, oddly enough, didn't really respond to the Bravura set pieces that are highly theatrical. And I agree, wonderfully artificial. And they have uh, an energy to them that animates it beyond the usual biopic. Well, I just thought we're, I hope we're about to not slip into Baz Luhrmann land, because then it's going to lose me completely. But it went in almost totally the opposite direction as it becomes her story. And I think Carrie Mulligan, the funny thing is, you know, very superficially people might say, well, you've got to get by, you know, his prosthetic schnoz, about which I'm sure we'll talk more and her accent which is a kind of slightly wobbly, mid-Atlantic, like kind of mid-century, upper-crusty, waspy-ish accent that I'm all too familiar with, right? Like I grew up in that milieu. It's overdone, definitely, by the standards of my childhood, and it does wobble a little bit. That said, I think both performances are extraordinary. Starting with him, my experience of such people is that in person... They're, I mean, my very, very isolated experiences over the course of my life with such people is that they there is a gigantism to them that follows them into their personal lives so that they experience continually a confusion of scale, right? they're They're constantly consuming their own image in the public eye, which is as a massive figure. I mean, a figure of huge scale and name recognition, familiarity, and genuflection, or so sort of general ad- attitude of genuflection and how you rid yourself of that in your interpersonal relations at the moment when you sh- are supposedly supposed to fulfill another role as father or husband and friend and suddenly shrink down to nothing but a human proportion, I think is, is a challenge and they don't often do it in some sense. And I think that there's a distance and a kind of floating balloon like, you know, Macy's Day Parade gigantism to People like Bernstein, even with their can be even with their intimates. First of all, he's an enormously seductive figure in this movie. He he's not treated as a as a distant figure in that sense. He's he's charismatic, very sexual. He loves to flirt, and he gets his way just by being pleasing. Their arguments are fascinating to watch, right? Because they're. Masterpieces of sort of indirection circumlocution of the not said um until one culminates on a Thanksgiving day that whole Thanksgiving day itself sort of a set piece where he's supposed to be at Thanksgiving. He arrives very late. his children are now older and have sort of figured out stuff.
0: I would put the Cinderella thanksgiving float going by out the window as in the file of directorially slightly too much, but <laughs> go on. <laughs>
1: I kind of weirdly loved it. I mean, I I I just thought like
0: fairy tales over.
1: <laughs> but no, it was beautiful. I could tell you think so. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like such a fucking sucker. I was like,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all for people using their creative power to make interesting choices and I for me the the a lot of the flights of directorial fancy really do work. I loved that scene that Dana mentioned, but it's funny. One of the themes like to the the movie is so much about the marriage, but one of the themes that this Leonard Bernstein seems to be wrestling with is the, the pull between being a conductor and a public performer of his selfhood standing up there in the podium and being a creator. Who's often the solitary room you know, composing something. And you feel uh, it It seems that perhaps maybe why Bradley Cooper is interested in that is maybe the tension between being the actor who's the performer and the director who's the, who's the creator more behind the scenes. And so it makes sense that that would be a creative tension in Bernstein's life that is thematically interesting to Cooper. And he mostly pulls it off, but he almost pulls it off it feels a little out of balance. Like I again, I was like, would I like this movie more if it was just like a fictional great guy? It almost feels like it's leveraging the bigness of Bernstein to create the space for this smaller, private drama, which feels sort of unfair to Bernstein to me. Like I, he just, I just would have. Liked a little bit more substance there, and then I did feel like the one directorial touch that really made me feel like, "Oh, Bradley, I'm excited for your next movie. Like, hopefully, you'll get all the dials a little bit more regulated." Is at the in the closing credits, it cuts to images of the real Bernstein, and the point seemed so heavy handed to me. Like, look, Ma, I did it, I did it. Look how crazy mm. it was. It was so close. It was so close. I looked just yeah. like him. I looked just like him. And I was like, Ugh, like,
2: knock it off, Bradley. Yeah, the biopic cliche of showing the real person in the credits is just, you know, outside of whether it was a show-offy movie that came beforehand, that move itself is show-offy and cliched. And I'm surprised that this movie would do it because there's so many other biopic cliches that it skirts very effectively. But Steve, I have to come back on something that you said about Carrie Mulligan's accent and character, because I I thought that was one of the strongest parts of her performance. I thought it was incredible. And when I was writing my review, I was trying to figure out what her accent was exactly. and was watching some clips of Felicia Montealegre. And first of all, she speaks exactly like Felicia Montealegre oh, did. Okay. but but just to give some background of how complex that accent is, and Mulligan has talked in interviews about, you know, working with her dialect coach for long periods trying to get it, Felicia Montealegre was born in Costa Rica. She was raised in Chile. She was sent to a British boarding school, I believe, in Chile. And her father was an American an American Jew. So, I mean, she just, she had a lot of, of that's a very layered accent and she's not just sort of impersonating Catherine Hepburn or something. So I just, I wanted to, to, to put in a good word for Carrie. I don't think you can say that her accent is going in and out, but I think you can say that it's a very odd and layered mixture of voices and sounds. A
1: palimpsest, yes. point ticket. I agree.
2: I mean, I feel like there's so much more to say about this movie. And I do hope that people see it if they're at all interested in it. Um, But I wanted to send people because we sort of teased that we would talk about Bradley Cooper's nose and his his makeup job in general, and we didn't really get to it. But if listeners are interested in reading a really, really great piece about not just uh, Bradley Cooper's makeup and the use of the nose to, you know, turn him into the Jewish Leonard Bernstein, but Just a great reflection, I think, in general about performance and identity and the current preoccupation with representation and who can play what on screen. Mark Harris, the film writer, film historian, wrote something really wonderful for Slate on this a few weeks ago now, around when Maestro came out. We'll put a link to it on the show page, but I would send people there to really, really think through the nose question.
1: Okay. The movie is Maestro. It's on Netflix, I should have said, Um, so it's easy to find. We pretty much loved it. You should check it out. All right. Well, it is that time of year again. It's a time to be meditative, meta, also to drill down on favorites and maybe overrated um, snubs. A little bit of an Oscar preview. It's Movie Club, and Movie Club basically is slate as led by its movie critic Dana Stevens uh, hosts a effectively a digital roundtable of prominent film critics. Uh, Dana, tell us who's in the roster this year and where this kind of Ouija board. Uh, Took all of you collectively as you began to discuss 2023 in movies.
3: Well,
2: I'll tell you who was in it. Maybe you guys can tell me where the Ouija board took you. But I, the the lineup that we got, I was very very pleased with. Dan Coice was the editor of the club this year, and he did the reaching out. And uh, I was so so excited as he kept on sending me back. So and so said yes. So and so said yes. And uh, and we got a lot of the people that we thought might be too busy to do it. So Bilga Ibiri of Vulture, who is really a long time movie clubber, I think he did it last year as well. He's done it. Lots of years, not necessarily in a row, but he's always, always a a fantastic and incredibly prolific seer of and writer on movies. Uh, We had a first-timer, Esther Zuckerman, who's never done Movie Club before, and we really wanted to bring in somebody who was sort of new blood and, you know, different generation, and she was awesome. And then I was thrilled that we got Mark Harris, who I just mentioned in an earlier segment as the author of of that piece on Bradley Cooper's nose. Anyway, he's he's, to me one of the best film writers out there and not quite a critic, but more of a film historian, which brings a different perspective. So it was those three and me. And uh, per movie club tradition, we also had interruptions as the club rolled on, because if somebody doesn't know this feature, you know, it's basically all of us doing a round robin conversation that goes on for four rounds, so about 20 posts and all. Uh, but people from Slate, culture writers from Slate sometimes jump in with their own two cents. And this time that was Sam Adams, Dan Coyce who was editing us and Nadira Goff, uh, the Culture Gab Fest's own uh, longtime friend of the program.
0: It was such a good year, Dana. I had so much fun reading it. It was really lively. And it's funny, I happened to be reading um, Mark Harris's Pictures of the Revolution, which I, hadn't, I haven't read yet. And so it was fun to have his voice pop up in that form when I'm consuming it in another one, but uh, you guys had so many good debates and mostly seemed to be reveling and basking in uh, the idea that Uh, I can't come to this conversation as I do some years and be like, "Eh, it's too bad movies or jazz now. And it's just an obscure art form that you all argue about and nobody watches because it was such a big movie year. So there was like gloating and toasting. There was a triumphalist tone that was really fun.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Julie. You know, I agree. There was a a kind of a a triumphalist energy that the club doesn't usually start with. I feel like for the past few years, at least since COVID onward, and maybe even a, a bit before that, yeah, I always want to start movie club with this kind of pep talk like it's okay, movies are still around, they're still good, and this year they're because of Barbenheimer basically and because of, you know, the, the return to theaters that that was both a symptom of and I think helped to to kind of generate afterward, it didn't feel necessary anymore to kind of, you know, joggle people's excitement about the movies. It seemed like it was right there and uh, and that brought a lot of good energy to the first round.
0: Yeah, there was also a little bit of gloating about the collapse and failure of superhero movies this year. Uh, you know, that that's another annual tradition is like the state of the degree to which you are all subjugated by the Mrs. Scrubbit indentured conveyor belt of of, <laughs> of superhero movies. So there was a little bit of gloating there too. Um, but but what were some of the other trends or themes that your interlocutors identified that were surprising or interesting or thought-provoking for you, Dana?
2: Well, actually, one that occurs to me has something to do with our conversation about Maestro from earlier, although I think Maestro was maybe a movie that never came up in Movie Club or only was briefly mentioned but Bilga did have a really great post late in the club about uh, about biopics and about outsized performances, and he was specifically admiring um, Adam Driver's performance in Ferrari, which is a movie I won't get into because we haven't seen it yet as a group, and we probably will see it at some point if it comes up for any Oscar nominations. Uh, but he's a huge Michael Mann fan. Bilga is, and uh, and he absolutely loved that performance, even though he himself admits that driver's accent isn't really Italian. He doesn't really seem to be in his late 50s. You know, it's sort of too big of a reach. He's bitten off more than he can chew. And yet there is something about the the drive, the way he plays the insane drive of Enzo Ferrari, you know, the the, the auto magnet um, that Bilga found completely seductive. And so he has this great post where he just talks about performances that don't quite fit in their movies, but that's sort of the point, And that's what makes them wonderful. And uh, in response to that, I mentioned something about Nick Cage in Dream Scenario, which we talked about recently on this show. And that conversation just came to mind, Julia, when we were talking about Bradley Cooper as Leonard Bernstein. And I was asking myself during our discussion, is this thing that we're calling you know, a sort of show-offy element to his performance part of that, you know, outsizedness or is it something different? And if you're directing yourself, does that change it? I'm not quite sure of the answer to that, but I love that idea that Bill get introduced. And I know that when I see over the top performances in the future, I'll be asking myself, is this like what he loved about Adam Driver's Enzo Ferrari?
0: Well, it's funny. I was, I had actually just finished my story when I was reading that post and I, I think he also shouted out the Joaquin Phoenix performance in Napoleon is a similarly like disjointed, not quite. Like, that's not what Napoleon was like, looked like, talked like. <laughs> like, And yet the sort of stubborn weirdness of that performance is one of the things that does work about that movie. And I, Bilga seemed to intimate, but certainly in my own reflections, it felt like I would put Bradley Cooper's performance in the other bucket of like, so faithful and adherent as to be insightless, actually. Like, that that was sort of my issue there. But it was super provocative to to hear discussions of that kind of performance, I think, and and what makes acting good.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. That The chaos isn't there in Bradley Cooper's performance. And I think it was that element of chaos that Bilga found fascinating and seductive.
1: So my, I would say that my overall general impression of the dialogue was just such a heartening one, which is that, you know, Bear in mind, it was only a few months ago that people were wondering, going into the Mission Impossible opening weekend, like, you know, can can Tom Cruise, you know, building on the Top Gun sequel success, save the movies, as if it were really up to that guy to s- save American movies, right? I mean, it was preposterous in its premise, but just that the mood was such that you might have thought that, and it just shows you how totally paradigm shifting barbenheimer felt in commercial terms and just post-covid and in the age of streaming the idea that a cinematic event could be so distinctive that it required going and seeing right away on opening weekend not just one but two films um both of which in their way were you know each of which was unexpected in its originality like they did something quite daring with uh The given intellectual property that they were dealing with. So it's sort of a twin story of the superhero movie, which has been propping up the whole enterprise commercially for so long to diminishing creative returns, to put it mildly, that sort of were beyond this, is it on life support? And what do the movies collectively mean? There was just a sense that some degree of the lost, not just commercial viability, but cultural centrality of movies to the American experience could be returning which was so heartening the other thing i was really heartened by was you know being close to the person who wrote the book i was never fully confident that what i felt for killers of the flower moon was really echoed in the critical consensus or it was just somehow a personal response i w- was very glad to see it it's on i believe it's on everybody's list to the extent that people went through their top 10 lists so there was genuine enthusiasm for what that movie accomplished and then over and over again, the one that I want to see is is being mentioned in the movie club and on, on certainly on all of your top 10 lists. The Zone of Interest, what I really hope we're going to um, see and talk about soon.
0: Yeah, there was an interesting debate about that and a debate about Manola Dargis's very, very negative review of that movie and sort of what it means to hate a movie. I loved that thread that you started, Dana. But I also on Killers of the Flower Moon, that was one of my most interesting responses because that movie really has curdled for me in its aftermath and into really feeling like Leo's performance doesn't work and that characterization doesn't work and it's a place where adaptation gets in the way, like the, the desire to be faithful to the historical material kind of gets in the way of telling an interesting story as much as I admire many, many things about that movie, including the filmmaking and everybody's efforts in the performance. And I think it was... Mark Harris mounted a really interesting defense of Leo's performance in that role and the way in which it, w- what he's actually doing as an actor and how it makes space for uh, Lily Gladstone's performance. And it didn't quite change my mind about the movie, but it made me think twice, which is just my favorite, favorite thing about Movie Club. So I loved reading that. I also thought in reading the kind of hopeful tidings. That I thought of a line that's in Pictures at a Revolution, which is, is something I'm going to mangle it, but it's something like when a movie surprises Hollywood by flopping, everybody knows what to do. But when a movie that succeeds in Hollywood is a surprise it can really mess with people's heads for years (laughs) and like I think this was to describe the folly of musical glut that followed on to the success of Sound of Music in the era that he's describing in the book but uh, I thought of it in in wondering in response to the effusiveness this year whether we're headed for like a couple of years where the suits are like get me something original it's gotta be something we've never seen before <laughs> like <laughs> you know like <laughs> it's not strange enough it's not new enough buster like I I don't think so but I but I like it
1: I'm into it I hope so <laughs> I love your 1930s Hollywood mogul voice though. I spent
0: as much time on that voice as Carrie Mulligan did on Felicia <laughs> Montalegra <laughs> so thank you
1: It's a great effect
0: <laughs> uh...
2: Julia, because you mentioned it, I feel I feel the need to say that the post that I wrote about what it means to hate a movie and whether hate is a valid critical category is actually a response, a very belated response to a listener who wrote in for, about, about an episode of this show. I think we were talking about the David Fincher movie, The Killer, possibly. I can't even remember who used the verb to hate. But this listener wrote in basically saying, I mean, it was a very, very reasoned and thoughtful email sort of saying in this time when hate speech is so rampant and that word is being thrown around and it's having real world consequences. Is it okay to use that word about a cultural object or, or should you think twice before you use it? And, uh, And Steve answered the listener. I didn't answer. And I think, Steve, you said something along the lines of, you know, thanks for your thoughtful email and we'll be mindful of this in the future. And I remember that although I appreciated that listener writing in and didn't want to cause a fight about it, I had this moment of qualm sort of as a critic. Like, wait a minute, I'm not allowed to hate things. (laughs) I'm not allowed to use that word. I can have love, the love end of the spectrum, but not the other end of feeling about a cultural object. And I had always thought that maybe I should write Uh, you know, add my own post to that thread. But instead of doing that, I wrote this post for Movie Club about that very same question in relation specifically to the movie Saltburn, uh, which I did not hate, but which I had put off seeing for months and months because I did hate the first movie of that writer director, Emerald Fennel, who made Promising Young Woman, which I can't re- remember if we talked about it on our show or not. but oh, we definitely talked about it on that show. We had such a fun fight about
0: it, and I loved that I loved your conversation there and the follow up you wrote for Slate about your lacerating feelings about that movie.
2: I mean, I think that's something that I love about Slate Movie Club is that it allows you to have this kind of unrolling set of feelings about movies, right? Because throughout the year, you're so pegged to whatever is happening right now. And there's not really time to tie together how you feel about what happened before or your ongoing relationship with a movie or a creator. And I like that the club allows us to do that, not just have second thoughts, right, or revise your opinion about a movie, but be able to say, oh, here is why I resisted this movie because how I felt about this other one. And that makes me wonder about hatred and... I like that there's a lot of that kind of reflection going on, I think, in in this year's club.
0: Well, it's a great addition. I would heartily send our our listeners there, and it did leave me with lots of things I want to see, including Zone of Interest. And I also missed our Past Lives week, and you guys didn't talk much about Past Lives, and then Dan Coyce. And used his interjection to speak up for it. So,
2: which which I then had an opportunity to talk about how that movie hasn't sat that well with me. Although it's not at all a case of hatred, it was just sort of a case of feeling that movie was overpraised.
1: Mm-hmm. But yeah,
2: if you loved and or hated and or didn't know what to think about past lives, you can definitely see some um, some thrashing out of that movie happening.
1: Okay. All right. Well, it's the Slate Movie Club. It's up now. Uh, is a very very strong year for it. Please check it out. All right, now is the moment in our uh, program, and we endorse Dana. What do you uh, What do you have?
2: I have a surprising movie. I doubt that we're going to end up talking about this on the show because we're getting into Oscar season. And I believe pretty soon we'll be starting our Oscar countdown where we just see movies that are nominated, which this movie will probably not be. But it so happens that one of the last movies that I saw in 2023 was Godzilla Minus One, the new Japanese Godzilla film, which is at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Its Critics are going crazy for it. It's only because of that that I went to see it. I think I would probably normally not go to a a reboot of a Godzilla unless it was being gushed about. But the fact it was a Japanese movie in, in particular interested me. And the fact that it is a prequel. It's a prequel of the original 1953 Godzilla, which I hope our listeners are familiar with. I mean, it's so much more than a monster movie, the first Godzilla. It is really an incredibly bleak allegory about war and about the atomic bomb and the aftermath of the Second World War. And this new film Godzilla minus one is a prequel to that movie, so it imagines sort of um, an atomic experiment. I won't give any any spoilers away, but a, an atomic experiment that precedes the first movie, and you know the giant lizard that results from that. But for a, a kaiju movie, it has incredible character development. A huge amount of, you know, political, social kind of allegory poured into it as the original Godzilla did. And it's just really beautifully done. And it's also great action. So um, Godzilla minus one, it's still on screens right now. And uh, it's really worth seeing.
1: Ooh, that does sound good. That sounds amazing. Uh, Julia, what do you have?
0: Okay, well, my husband listened to our call-in show and came to me afterwards and was like, what's the thing you're going to endorse? You, like, really pitched this specific awesome endorsement. And I was like, I have no recollection of that, and I don't remember what it is. I'm certain that when I go back and listen to it, I will remember it. And so I will bring you guys that endorsement to the best of my abilities next week, or perhaps it can be lost, like, um, you know, we can go questing for it, like Indiana Jones. But instead... Sometimes you think, is there an app that will solve this problem? And then there just like is one and it's right there at the top of the list and it does exactly the thing you want. And it's one of those things that inspires in me the technophilic feelings that causes Steve to call me a robot while simultaneously thanking me for introducing him to the Merlin app. But this morning, one of the qualities of light in L.A. is that on some days you can see the mountains and on some days you can't. On some days they're not visible at all because of the smog and haze. On some days you can catch their faint outlines and they're purple or they're amber or they're gray, gray, gray. And then on some days it is crystal clear and you can see every little jog and angle of their shapes and slopes, and it's so gorgeous. And this morning, the first workday of the new year for me, was one of those mornings where out of the windows of my house, I could see this distant mountain, not the nearby Santa Monica Mountains that that I know and climb regularly, but one of the San Gabriels and this specific peak looked so sharp. And because it is the year of New Year's resolutions, I was like, I wonder, I never go hiking in the San Gabriels. I wonder if I could climb that specific mountain. How would I even figure out what is that mountain? And then I was like, find mountain peak near me to Google (laughs) in the manner that one can do now and could not do 10 or 20 or however many years ago. And lo, I was suggested Peak Finder and downloaded Peak Finder, which took like half a minute to like, you know, install my terrain on my thing and then uh, told me it was Mount San Antonio. So I got to go figure out if I can hike that. But now at least I know what mountain it is I have resolved to hike this year. So wish me luck. It's a 10,000 footer. And um, I'll report back. But in the meantime, Peak Finder does exactly what you... It, it's it's like one of those stargazing apps where you, if you hold it up at the sky, it tells you what all the stars are. Um, and if you like move it around you know the the you can kind of identify everything it's like that for the peaks on the horizon peak finder solve my problem tickety-boo as they said
1: in Wonka pleasingly oh that sounds amazing uh okay I'm going to endorse a book I think I mentioned I was reading on a previous episode I've now finished it ended up really loving it which was uh, armies of the night by Norman Mailer and I had often heard this about Mailer that like, yes 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 he's a macho blowhard and you know sort of Latter day Hemingway Manke and a bizarre self promoter with extremely, extremely outre and now to us repellent views on on uh, gender and, and race. But you can kind of if you are in the mood to not ignore him completely because he is a as it were seminal figure, you can ignore the novels and and stick with the non the better nonfiction. And as a matter of historical importance, like I think if you were taking a um, like a whiteness studies class or a critical race theory class, reading The White Negro would be an important thing to do with nothing but critical distance. Let me please make myself clear. But among his nonfiction works that have that status as, as a at least serious historical curiosity, that's one of them. That's not my endorsement. Armies in the Night, I'd always heard was arguably his best book. I actually think it's an incredible book. It's his account of the march on uh, the Pentagon. He narrates it in the third person. He calls himself Mailer, you know, like Henry Adams in The Education of Henry Adams. This bizarre affectation that in both books actually really works, and it's this running inner monologue by an in- insecure blowhard who's constantly trying to figure out the significance and possible consequences of the thing they're doing, which is encouraging young people to turn in their draft cards uh, or burn them and basically refuse complicity in the Vietnam war. And they're leading a march of young people with their draft cards. And they're there because they know that they can't be these cultural luminaries like Mailer are there because they know they can't be arrested without consequence. Like the newspapers won't be able to depict them as, as beatniks or reds or dupes or whatever. So they're conscious of the sacrifice they might be making. But it's effectively Mailer, Dwight MacDonald, the critic, and the great poet Robert Lowell um, are the principal characters. And it's this insecure interior monologue about Mailer in relation to the vitality of the young people. He's now in his 40s and he's worried about Premature senescence, and you know whatever, and uh, but it's also his literary reputation and his sense of himself as a as a writer and as a literary figure and as a public figure vis a vis, especially Robert Lowell, this New like scion of New England, you know just the embodiment of of all of English poetry, born again on American soil and American Puritanism, and you know married to Elizabeth Hardwick and whatever, and it's just hilariously funny and weirdly tender and understanding by which this horrible blowhard achieves a kind of grace it's it's kind of an amazing performance and is very 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 fucking funny anyway armies in the night by norman mailer i ended up weirdly loving it julia thank you so much
2: thanks steve happy new year
1: yeah happy new year dana happy new year this was was, as always really fun it was a pleasure You will find uh, links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's Slate.com slash CultureFest. And you can email us at CultureFest at Slate.com. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Jared Downing. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.